this thing on yet? Check, microphone, check. This is a brand new mic. I got Britney Spears' mic. It's signed on the side. I can't I love this thing. Oh, I just kind of feel like singing. I don't know if I should, but... We're going to hear from Isaiah. And this is actually the call of Isaiah. And this is a really good snapshot of God. It's also Trinity Sunday today. I don't know if you knew that. And last week was Pentecost, where we celebrated we get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made us a church. And then also we have this mission expo. So there's a lot of stuff going on today, and I'm trying to figure out what's God got for us. And I'm really, really excited. This text is just ridiculous. Let's read it. Um, Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 1, and I'm going to end with verse 8. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. It's got like a little bit of a snapshot of last week when the Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and there was no corner left without the Holy Spirit. So there's this Lord, he's seated seated on a throne. And the train of his robe fills the whole place. Seraphs, another word for angels. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. It's really important that you picture this. Six wings. And that's going to describe what the wings are doing. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they're covering their faces. They have six wings. Two are taken now, covering their faces. What do you think that means? We're not worthy. They're covering their face. They're in the presence of the Lord. Angels aren't worthy to be in this place. With the other two, they cover their feet. So they got two wings covering their feet, or two wings covering their faces, two wings covering their, their feet. Basically, they're covered head to toe. Our whole bodies are not worthy of being in this place. And with the other two, they flew, so they're hovering. And there's got these two wings. You can't even see the angels, the seraphs. They're covered, their face, head to toe. This is what they're doing. And one called to the other. There's two of them. One called to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled Full of his glory. They're saying this. The one is yelling this so loud to the other. The pivots on the thresholds shook at their voices. And the house filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah. Woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth and said, 
now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Who's saying us? God. Trinity Sunday. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Insert Glenn and Heather's wedding sermon right here. It takes a church to reflect a community that is God. You have to have at least two people to reflect them, something that's three. Amen? There's a sermon right there, but I won't go there. And then he says, this is what Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. In this tradition, I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond, thanks be to God. Molly and I were dating. I was a, uh, I think I was a college intern at the time, and she was a Berkeley student, and I was driving a 1985 Volkswagen Golf, and if you need a mental image of that, just picture a go-kart with a couple extra seats, and often I would drive up after Wednesday night program, and I would get to Berkeley, you know, early early morning, like one, two in the morning. And then I'd spend until Saturday and I'd drive back and I would, you know, do my duties at the church I was working at in Newport Beach. The last leg of that car (laughs) was spent on one of those trips. And so halfway up there, things start happening to this Volkswagen Golf. (laughs) And it starts saying, hey, dude, you're not... Uh, this isn't going well. <laughs> and you start hearing this. <laughs> skip to the end of the story. As I'm start heading back. Everything starts failing on this thing. Head gasket blows. Steam's flying out the back. Transmission goes. I'm stuck in third gear. I drive from. I don't know where I was. <laughs> I don't know if you've been between Berkeley and, and here, but it's, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of stretches you don't know where you are. I think it might be purgatory. <laughs> but I'm at this gas station. I'm getting this thing going in third gear. I limp within like 15 miles of my house. The car dies. It never drives again. But the point I'm telling of the story, I don't remember the point. I do remember the point because I have the thought, and it's a good one. And it's we as a church... We as a people of God, we're stuck in third gear. We have been given so, so much in Christ Jesus, but we're pretending like we don't. And for some reason, we're driving, and I I remember sweating bullets, and I remember thinking, man, this is not what this car is designed to do. And I remember thinking, this is the church. We are just stuck in this third gear, and we're, we're limping. This text gives us our fourth, fifth gear, because it has five gears. This text 
calls us and encourages us to know who we are and what this is about. This, this, this text gives us life. And I'll tell you how it does it. I want to read a quote. I'm going to read a quote from this A.W. Tozer guy. And a couple guys I've made read this book and they kind of hate me for it. But I love this book. And um, this is the quote. Tozer says this. And he says this in the introduction. A condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty goal and concept of God and substituted substituted it for so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. This text opens. Read verses 3 and 4 again. These seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We've surrendered our view of God that is worthy of worship. Our God is a sissy. Our God is a weak a weak substitute for what really God is like. And the key, the first key is to start thinking. uh, And this, this key is to get the fifth gear. And this key is to live fully. And this key is actually to worship. We were built for worship. Did you know that Westminster Shorter Catechism says this? What's the chief end and glory of man? Like, what, what's the chief end of man? Why were men and women created? And the early church fathers said to worship God and enjoy Him forever. We were built to worship. We were built to be in this place. We were built to be in this text. We were built to see the Lord of Lords. And the the way that we get back to having that fifth gear fully alive is worship more. And I'm not just saying singing. I'm saying living in light of a God that is worthy of everything that we have. They're screaming it so loud, the room is shaking. There's pillars, there's smoke. And these, holy, holy, holy. And this, 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 this scene is just absolutely amazing and astounding. I remember I was working in Newport Beach and there was this guy, he was always hanging around. And I worked there for, I worked there six years in the 90s and 2000s. Then I worked there three more in the 2000s. And at the very beginning, I had met this man. And it wasn't until the last year that I was working that I understood what this guy was about. 
And his name was Larry. And he was always walking. He was always the first one to show up to worship, the last to leave. And he was always had a limp. And he's going like this. And I, was, I just never knew really his story. He's just a real quiet guy. Kept to himself. As I was leaving, he pulled me aside and he said, I'd love to treat you to breakfast. I said, okay. Sitting with breakfast with this guy. He's the guy that invented how blood, how they keep blood. You remember, they used to, they used to freeze dry it. Do you remember that? Anybody? Anybody a nurse, a doctor? There's probably a couple of them in here. But I guess they used to freeze dry it or something. They used to, and you can only keep it a certain amount of time. And then it would go bad. And so they needed to figure out a way to keep blood from going bad. So he did this heating up and cooling it down. I, I don't think he adds any chemicals or something. He does some process and it makes it last. And so he's, he's got quite a bit of money. But he's a big, big deal. And I was, I, I was unaware of it. A lot of us think, hey, God's pretty cool. You know, and we ask him questions and we say, hey, what's uh, why did you make a pterodactyl? Why did you kill off the dinosaurs? Or like, why did you put on the kneecaps of those birds backwards? You know, why did you, you know, like we come up with silly questions for God. And we say, yeah, yeah. Like we think he's some trivial thing or being. And we see right here, a snapshot unveiled. This is what the Lord looks like. You don't have to read between the lines. There's no parable. This is what he looks like. And it's this amazing Lord of Lords which means king of kings. You may think there's a king, but this, this is this king's king. He's the king of kings. And he's, he's so beautiful that angels can't look at him or share, like they don't show part, any part of themselves. And they scream to each other so loud that the room shakes. So the first step in getting back to worshiping is to start thinking rightly about God. I'm here to call you this morning. We need to think rightly about God. And I have an extra copy of this. Who wants to think rightly about God and read? Actually, I told somebody I was going to give it to him. He had a really cool name. First Sunday. Where are you? What was your name? What? Jensen. Where am I? Oh, I can do this now, too. This is awesome. And I should preach over here because it's not hot. To heck. I feel like my, my, my pancreas is cooked a little. Jason Warren Griffiths, nice to meet you. I should high-five everybody. This is awesome. What's up, dude? Who's got, who's got a broken femur? All right. Second thing we got to do. And we get it from this guy's example. Look what Isaiah does. Isaiah P.S. is around Kara Roberts' age at this point. This is Kara Roberts. This isn't us. This is young people. Not me. I'm 40. I got back hair. But that's another story. <laughs> what does he say? He says, woe. Woe is me. I am lost. I am unclean. I'm lost. I'm unclean. I want to read a Calvin quote from this. John Calvin, great theologian, says this. Until God revealed himself to us, 
until God reveals himself to us, we do not think that we are men. Or rather, we think that we are gods. But when we have seen God, we then begin to feel and know what we are. Hence springs forth humility, which consists in this, that a man makes no claims for himself and depends wholly on God. A man or woman makes no claims for himself or herself and depends wholly on God. And therefore, on this point, the present and similar passages ought to be carefully studied. John Calvin says, stick to this text. Read it more than just once on a Sunday. Hang around this. This is something we need to get good at. I love, actually, I hate the Spurs, but I love Tim Duncan. Do you remember Tim Duncan? What's his nickname? The Big Fundamentals. Whenever he loses, he just does thousands and thousands of layups. He does thousands and thousands of breast breast passes, bounce passes. Big fundamentals. He always goes back to the fundamentals. The fundamentals of the faith, the fundamentals of the game. And Isaiah, John Calvin, says that Isaiah is calling us back and saying, get back and get back into this fundamental. You think you're a god. You think you are the big stuff. You think you're the big cheese because when it gets dark, you can turn a light on. When you get hungry, you go to the fridge. When you need to go somewhere, you get in your, 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 your Prius or your 1985 golf, whatever that thing was, Volkswagen Golf, and you go there. You think you, you're, you're, you're God. You've made yourself into your own God. And when you step into the presence of the God, of the real God, the first thing you realize is you are not God. You are not worthy of God. You are not worthy to be in the presence of God. Isaiah, this guy's a holy kid. He grew up in a Jewish family, probably went to synagogue, memorized this this part of the Bible. He could tell you the middle word of Micah. He's memorized all this stuff. He's, 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 He's got all this stuff in his mind. He goes into the presence of God, a laundry list of all the ways that he screwed up. Just starts streaming down his in his mind, in his memory. That time I didn't listen to my mom. That time I took that thing that wasn't mine. That time I talked badly about somebody behind their back. That time I didn't, I didn't clean my room when I was, my, my parents were depending on me. I don't know if that was a thing back then. But you, you get my point. All of his sins, and he falls on the ground like a dead man and says, Woe is me, I am unclean. Know that you are not God. It's important, to quote Calvin, to know what we are. If we want to get better at worshiping, we need to start thinking rightly about God and we need to know what we are. We need, to, we need, we need so much humility, it's ridiculous. I need so much humility, it's ridiculous. Third, it's important to realize when we're worshiping God that in his holiness, are, are found both justice and mercy. I'll read a quote from a guy named John Golden Gay. Isaiah's instinct 
to infer that holiness will end, will be the end of him, turns out to be mistaken. Just look at verse 6 and 7. Turns out he's mistaken. That God's holiness will be the end of it. He says, woe is me, I'm, I'm done. Angel comes down, grabs a coal, puts it on his lips. And says, you're clean. You're forgiven. You're back to how I designed you to be. He also learns that holiness can mean forgiveness. Skip ahead in the book, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah says this, For thus says the high and lofty one. Same word, same description. That's the beginning of Isaiah 6, chapter 1. For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the holy place and also, and also, and also, with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. The good news is within the holiness of God, within the God that we worship, there's both the aspect of he is totally outside. He is other than. He's so much bigger than you can possibly imagine. We are so much more unworthy than we can possibly imagine. But within that same aspect, that holiness of God, there's also this holy love. A holy love that is unlike any other love you can possibly imagine. We can't even think of a non-conditional love. We can come close because we have kids and we have parents and we have like grandparents and that kind of stuff. But that doesn't, there's always boundaries. There's always a condition. But with God, there isn't. As the great Brennan Manning taught me a bunch of years ago, God loves you the same in the middle, while you're committing, while you're thinking about, while you're acting out your greatest sin, the same way as he does now. His holiness, his love doesn't change. If that doesn't make you want to worship, something's missing. <laughs> something's wrong. Because that is amazing. That is, that is a, that's, that's God meeting you where you most need to be met. Amen. That's what somebody said. And then, so we need to think rightly of God. We need to know what we are. We need to be humbled. And we need to realize that both justice and merciful grace are found in the holiness of God. And then Isaiah gives us just a shining example of what it looks like. What it looks like when you realize that God is absolutely beautiful. God is absolutely amazing. You're not worthy to be in God's presence. And then you also realize I've got a bunch of messed up qualities and I don't deserve to be here. But then 
you're met by God and God says, I take you as is. I take you as is. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to change anything. I take you as is. Isaiah says this, here am I. Because God asks the question, who's going who's gonna to go for us? Who's going to represent the Trinity? And Isaiah says, I'm here. The question remains to you and I. Who's going to go? And I don't necessarily, because Isaiah doesn't go very far. He just actually hangs out in the same neighborhood and he starts proclaiming what God tells him to proclaim. So he doesn't go on a mission trip. He does and he doesn't because he doesn't go really far, but he sees every moment from that, for, that moment on as a mission trip. And he says, yes, Lord, you fill in the question. Yes, Lord, you fill in the question. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. My buddy Ed shows me this all the time. There's so many people in this room that show me this all the time. I want to tell you that this, this congregation is amazing at this. Lori Forgatch, I said, we're going to Thailand. She put her hand on my chest like my mom used to do. She said, I want to go to Thailand. Uh, what? We have a lot of people in this room that say, yes, Lord Spencer, playing the keys all the time. Who knew the guy was handsome? He was probably born in a polo shirt. <laughs> but he can play the keys too. He doesn't get a Christmas bonus. He just says, here I am, Lord. Use me. We need more of that. We've, we've got it, but we need more of it. That's what this place is about. The church isn't about the church. The church is actually about the world. The church is about sharing this message that this God who took me, he took me. Look at this guy. <laughs> you know, like I can't see my shoes on some days because of my belly. I got back hair. I got all kinds of problems. I cuss like crazy. And I'm married to a cusser that can outcuss anybody in this room. I dare you to outcuss her. We, we're messed up. But God takes me. God takes me. And I say, woe is me. That's all I have to say. I all, all I have to do is fall on my knees and say, I, I can't do it. I can't make it. I can't do it. I'm a failure. I have all these things. I try and be good. I try and make the church. I try and do this stuff. I try and do blah, blah, blah. Try and be nice. Try and be. I don't like these people. I got hurt in my family. Blah, 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 blah. And I take all this stuff and God comes to me and sends a seraph and says, you're clean. Not to do with anything you've done. So you don't get cocky. That's what Paul says. Paul says, it's not so, it's not. It's not of your work. There's nothing you can do. And the reason God takes us out of the equation is because he wants to eliminate any possibility of us becoming arrogant, us becoming cocky, us becoming better than. There is no better than in this room. And then he says, in light of this, in light of this, me taking you at your worst, and, trans and it's crazy because the cross comes in. 
And Luther says, it's us, the great exchange. I come to the cross. I put my sins on the table. Jesus comes to the cross, puts his righteousness on the table. He takes my sin. I take his righteousness. After that, after the great exchange, we have to say, here we are. Send us. Amen? I don't know what's next, but I feel like I should stand everybody up because we should do something, right? No? Okay. I think that's it. (laughs) Yeah.